Welcome to Covert Action Bulletin, the official radio program and podcast of Covert Action Magazine, where we've been exposing the covert action of the U.S. government and plutocrats worldwide since 1978. I'm Chris Garaffa. And I'm Rachel Hu. We're happy to be here with you on Covert Action Bulletin. In the wake of the 9-11 attacks, Islamophobia became sort of an unofficial religion in the United States. Vigilante street attacks on Muslim people became commonplace. The government surveilled mosques and community centers. And over two decades later, the situation doesn't seem to be all that different. Resistance to bringing refugees from Syria into the U.S. based entirely in racism and Islamophobia continues. And as we mark the 20th anniversary of the war in Iraq in March 2023, the New York Times major retrospective piece barely mentions the hundreds of thousands of Iraqi civilians who died and says nothing about its own role in the war or the toll on Muslim people in the U.S. So today we're going to be digging deeper into the role that Islamophobia plays in U.S. foreign and domestic policy. It is a tool that is used by those in power to justify wars and surveillance operations in its quest for continued global hegemony. We're joined by Dr. Nazia Kazi, author of Islamophobia, Race, and Global Politics, and Associate Professor of Anthropology at Stockton University in New Jersey. Welcome to the show, Nazia. Thanks so much for having me. No, certainly. I mean, there are so many questions I'm very excited to ask you. We are just coming off this past weekend on March 18th, a national action on the 20th anniversary of Iraq to really mark and recognize that the U.S. war machine is continuing. Of course, it's continuing by giving billions of dollars to wage war in Ukraine, but in all different ways, shapes, and forms. I mean, the kind of apparatus that was built post 9-11 by the United States really hasn't changed significantly in, in terms of the U.S. war drive and the U.S. empire's quest for further expansion. So I, I know you've written extensively about this, and I kind of want your thoughts, you know, as we're on the 20th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq by the United States, what your thoughts have been in terms of the state of things and especially the role of Islamophobia. I know there is so much there. So I'd love to hear kind of your retrospective and thinking back in the past the past 20 years. Yesterday, I think, was a, an especially heavy day for a lot of us as we commemorated 20 years since the U.S. invasion of Iraq. And it was heavy because we recognize the remarkable devastation of this incident, the gruesome, horrible death toll. But we also recognize what you are describing, which is that when the U.S. military apparatus expands, that expansion is permanent. <laughs> it doesn't shrink, right? So even if the American public sees the war on terror as quote unquote over, the apparatus of the war on terror still exists. So many people have pointed to the ways in which that war on terror bloated military apparatus of the United States is now uh, focused elsewhere, perhaps on China, perhaps on Russia, perhaps on future so-called major power conflict. So there's something really depressing about that. I think the other thing that's really remarkable as we commemorate, you know, this this horrible legacy is the mainstream erasure of it, the ways in which in public consciousness, the Iraq war is kind of a blip. And, and this became very apparent to me yesterday. I was on campus all day. I was teaching several classes. I had about 140 students yesterday. Uh, and I made a point to talk about the U.S. legacy in Iraq. And by that, I don't just mean the 2003 invasion. I don't just mean the rise of ISIS that is a result of the 2003 invasion. But I mean the decades of U.S. intervention that came before. Um, and to me, it's really striking how little there is in the way of public awareness. And this becomes especially apparent when you spend time in the university classroom. A lot of these students are involved in some way or another with the U.S. military, perhaps themselves have served, perhaps have a close family member who served. They certainly walk around on a militarized campus. You can't turn a corner on an American campus without seeing a kind of recruitment flyer or some kind of tribute to our troops. And yet what doesn't exist is the kind of awareness, you know, that I'm talking about here. So after, you know, about a 30 minute lecture yesterday in one of my classes about a number of issues, the bipartisan consensus, the ways in which key Democrats were crucial in uh, allowing Bush to invade in 2003, 
about the sanctions regime that came before the 2003 invasion and about how, you know, Iraqi oil reserves were privatized and turned over for, you know, capital appropriation after the 2003 invasion. One of my students, I mean, my students were really horrified to learn of this legacy. One of my students was like, well, how come there weren't millions in the streets then? (laughs) You know, and to me, that was really striking because I was like, there were. And so in that moment, I realized that not only have we erased the the brutal legacy of the 2003 invasion of Iraq in American public consciousness, but we've erased the global resistance, one of the biggest resistance movements in human history in the American consciousness, you know? And so that was really remarkable. I guess moving on to your question about Islamophobia, this is such an interesting question at this particular moment. You don't really see anti-Muslim racism taking up the discursive space that it used to, for instance, in 2016, when Donald Trump was running for president, or, you know, in, in 2001, 2002, in the aftermath of the September 11th attacks. You don't see Islamophobia being discussed the way we saw it when, you know, Barack Obama was running for president and he was like, you know, quote unquote, accused of being a Muslim. It's kind of quiet right now. And I think what that means is we have a really important role in creating a, a conversation about Islamophobia that is nuanced and sophisticated. So, yeah, you're absolutely right to point to kind of the the surveillance, the state violence, the ordinary kind of commonplace racism that Muslims have encountered for for decades in this country, longer than that, in fact. But it's also important to recognize that what is also Islamophobia is the U.S.'s strategic alliances with sort of like right-wing Muslim forces around the world. So you mentioned September 11th. And of course, you know, I think we can't understand September 11th without understanding Operation Cyclone, a CIA program that not only trained and armed and funded the right-wing Afghan Mujahideen, but also kind of authored a right-wing version of Islam that has shaped the religious and political consciousness of global Muslims. Uh, So, you know, when we talk about Islamophobia, I think one of the things that's often missing from the conversation is a kind of nuance that allows us to think about, yes, there's bigotry against Muslims, there's surveillance against Muslims, there's you know, incarceration of Muslims and detention and the deportation regime, etc. But there's also these strategic alliances and partnerships that we have to include in our definition of Islamophobia. And maybe that's something we can get into more in our conversation today. Yeah, definitely. I really appreciate what you're bringing forward. And I'm fascinated to hear about the students. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm just that that people don't know. I mean, I feel that this is a very intentional edit out of history. I know Chris and I talk about this a lot on the show about how the, the largest anti-war demonstrations in U.S. history were against the Iraq war. I mean, we're talking, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, 500,000 people. I mean, over the course of time, I mean, you could certainly say millions of people. The the public opinion radically shifted post 9-11, even within the, the decade of struggle where this happened, people's opinions shifted rapidly. So I just think it is kind of crazy to me that we're 20 years out and there isn't, for young people, a, a mass study of this. Because I do remember being in high school myself and you studied things that happened 20, 30 years ago. That's when they started hitting the history books. So it does shock me that there's still kind of an intentional washing away of this. But Chris, I know you want to get in here. Yeah, you know, I I occasionally have the opportunity to speak with high school and college age, you know, students and people. And it's so interesting to talk and and see what they know about 9-11. And at this point, they often know only what they've heard through history, right? They did not, even if they were alive, they do not remember it. They have no actual recollection of it. Um, You know, just, I mean, on one note, just telling people that before 9-11, you could walk up to an airport gate and meet the people you were picking up, like no one actually believes that if they were born after 9-11, right? And so it's this entire structure that has changed. Um, But also, you know, talking about the Iraq war, I mean, I remember, you know, George W. Bush called us a focus group. There were millions of people around, not just in the U.S., but around the world, I actually went to my first demonstration about 20 years ago today. It was in New York City. It was massive, huge demonstrations, and it was really barely even covered. It was streamed on like, you know, C-SPAN, you know, that day or whatever, and got a little bit of coverage, but really ignored. But I think, too, we can't talk about this without also talking about Afghanistan, because that was the one that went 
almost unopposed, except for some very principled forces in the anti-war movement, uh, you know, nationally and internationally. And it was justified by saying it was Al-Qaeda who hit the, the U.S., and Al-Qaeda is Muslim, and Afghanistan is holding on to Al-Qaeda in some way, and therefore, we should hit Afghanistan and take out the entire government of Afghanistan. We can see, and I think this this ties into that, you know, with especially with the Taliban being in power now, that ties into how the U.S. has actually either directly or indirectly been responsible for bringing in these, you know, extreme right elements, you know, into into power or or into influence. And so I think Afghanistan, you know, we have to talk about that a lot. But then we also have to talk about, right, the connection to what the CIA did in Afghanistan in the 70s and 80s, when it actually funded Osama bin Laden, when it funded the Mujahideen, you know, against the, the, the Afghan government that was getting assistance from the USSR. And this is a progressive Afghan government. This was a government that was giving women rights. This was a government that said that farmers have a right to land, that everyone has, a, has you know, certain basic rights that, you know, we don't even have in the U.S. in some instances right now. So, you know, Afghanistan, certainly we are talking around the anniversary of the Iraq war, but we I think we have to include Afghanistan, uh, both both modern Afghanistan, but also historically in the last century in the conversation. Right. For sure. For sure. I'm so glad you raised that, you know, because there's this idea that like or at least there was a few years ago that like the Iraq war was a mistake and the invasion of Afghanistan was this like necessary evil. Of course, after the I guess some people are calling it the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan last year or now two years ago, almost that narrative has shifted a little bit. But let's be clear, you know, we have to you're absolutely right. Account for the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan following September 11th, 2001, and the ease with which that moved forward. And also, you know, hashtag never forget that the Taliban wanted to surrender, wanted to negotiate a surrender soon after the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. And the U.S. instead opted for a protracted war, truly the American way. I think this question you're talking about with, you know, the, the U.S. support for right wing forces in the country is really important because as we see the war on terror sort of shape shifting and transforming into what looms, which is major power conflict, we also have to draw a connection to what came before the war on terror, which is the Cold War and how the Cold War sort of seamlessly and neatly shifted into the war on terror. You know, and this is another thing, again, spending the time that I do in the classroom, uh, there is a remarkable systemic ignorance. You know, when I say systemic ignorance, I mean, I don't just mean my students don't know, but I mean that my students have been made to not know about what this legacy was. So, you know, I mentioned Operation Cyclone earlier, uh, one of the biggest covert operations of the CIA. When you read about Operation Cyclone, it's just really remarkable because you see that right-wing repressive religiosity wasn't just a convenient tool for U.S. statecraft, but a necessary ingredient of it. That the CIA during the years of the Cold War had a program of translating and printing the Quran into a number of languages for circulation. But in Afghanistan specifically, the CIA created these like school books for children, which basically was like J for Jihad alphabet books that it circulated. And and of course, you know, these school books indoctrinated generations of young Afghans to have this kind of right wing religious militant mindset. Uh, and those books remain in circulation to this day. I, I think, you know, both of these erasures, the erasure of the Iraq war and the erasure of the Afghan war, but also the legacies that came before it are really remarkable. I mean, I don't think U.S. empire can exist without mass American amnesia. It's one of, if not the key ingredient of it. That's really that's really true. I really appreciate you bringing this forward. And I especially think, you know, this kind of information about how the United States played this massive role in, in creating this right-wing ideology, I, I think it's so important to discuss because when I'm, I'm just thinking about it now, and it's a huge part of the narrative of the war on terror was that these uncivilized backwards people need to be civilized. I mean, that's just, it felt very standard colonialism in a way, but it is kind of crazy when you look a little bit deeper and you see that a lot of the quote-unquote reasons, like these, these ideas of, oh, they're so backwards, we need to liberate women, all of this stuff, which was a major rationale for the war in Iraq, a major rationale for the war in Afghanistan. I mean, the war, every single war the U.S. has waged in the Middle East, they've said it's because we need to, in some way, shape or form, liberate people from this right wing religion. 
the fact that they spread it themselves, the fact that they're responsible for putting it there themselves in so many ways and helping nurture and grow this speaks volumes about the U.S.'s true interest in the Middle East. And one of the things I think that was really interesting to me, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too, Nazia, as a reflection back, is that I've heard a lot of young people today, and this could be my own bias of who I'm around, but I also feel as though just a a good cross-section of the population when asked about why the war in Iraq happened, like why did the war in Iraq happen? A lot, a lot of young people today will tell you it was because of oil and they don't necessarily know the details of what that means. They don't know exactly any of what that was or the process it took to get there to get people to think and believe that. But it's absolutely true. I mean, if you look at any sort of oil, if you look at these maps, there's some incredible maps that you can find of the Middle East that show the exact places in which oil is being taken out of of the inner parts of the land out towards the uh, the coastlines and how they get out and all the countries along the coastline of the most critical places in which the, the oil needs to be taken out. Those are areas the U.S. is target. I mean, that's Syria. There's a variety of other places that you can really see on those maps. But anywho, I do digress. I, I think that I'm very curious your thoughts on this kind of mass adoption of the idea that the war was for oil. Because I know early on that was not the case. People did not believe that. I mean, people really believed the war was because of 9-11 and because of Al-Qaeda, even though it had nothing to do with Iraq. So I'd love for you to speak more on this popular consciousness and also more of the early rationale that was given for the war. Yeah, I mean, also, you know, the this connection between Saddam Hussein and September 11th also remains in people's minds. I actually did a study of this a few years ago where one in five of my respondents said the reason the U.S. invaded Iraq in 2003 was because of 9-11. So that's still there. And there is, the, okay, so there is this, what you're talking about, this kind of popular assumption that the U.S. wages wars for oil. And sometimes, you know, people will swoop in and say, well, that's an oversimplification. And it's like, well, it's an oversimplification because it's true. I mean, the map that you're talking about, I mean, come on, you know, Iraq was what, the world's fifth largest oil exporter. And so, you know, we have to be very clear about the material um, motivations, the resource-driven motivations for American statecraft and war making. But after September 11, 2001, the Bush administration turns to the CIA and says, find the Iraq connection. The CIA says, well, there is none. He says, go find it. <laughs> okay. Not to make the CIA any kind of hero in this situation, but that 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 was true in that moment that, you know, uh, Saddam Hussein was made culpable for anti-American terrorism in the American consciousness in this way. And those connections remain alive to this day. Um, But at the time, you know, what were we, the American people, told? Of course, the the lie that we were told was that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And that lie, and of course, the people who were selling that lie knew it was false at the time. Uh, The sellers of that lie included, most importantly, Colin Powell. And he, as this sort of figure of American diplomacy, uh, stands at the United Nation. He he throws a shroud over Picasso's Guernica behind him because he didn't want to create any kind of anti-war sentiment in delivering this speech. And then sells this lie and waves around a tiny vial showing just how little Saddam Hussein would need to like destroy the world. Right. So this kind of very sensationalist fear mongering from a mainstream American political and military leader was key in this moment. But also, you know, there, there's a lot of other interesting things we ought to think about about this moment. For instance, uh, the U.S. military calling in anthropologists, archaeologists at the time, and I'm an anthropologist myself, being like, look, we know this is like, we know Iraq is the cradle of civilization. We don't want to like bomb anything that could be in one of our museums soon. Like, we, tell us where there's valuable stuff. Right. So these historic sites can be dodged in an aerial assault by the United States. Of course, then these very valuable archaeological, anthropological sites are then looted by the U.S. military. And there are military generals, military leaders that have like, you know, gold doorknobs that were looted from Saddam's palace that have other really valuable artifacts in their home that were just snatched and stolen from Iraq. So, yes, oil was a motivator, but there were these other resource driven motivations of the U.S. destruction of Iraq as well. Um, and, you know, you you mentioned this kind of colonial logic. It's so true. I mean, not just the discourse of liberating women, which, of course, anyone who has studied Iraq uh, 
it knows that like there were women going to like study physics and engineering. And I mean, you know, even under Saddam Hussein, I don't think like the education of women was ever really at stake there. The news reporting in the last few days has been so remarkable because the American mainstream media sold these lies. Uh, there was very little in the way of resistance or dissent or dissident voices in the American mainstream media then. But I was looking at NPR, which I think stands for National Propaganda Radio or something. But uh, NPR yesterday said... I thought it was National Pentagon Radio. Oh, yeah, that's probably what it is. Yeah. They say about the Iraq war, not all outcomes are bad. Despite the huge loss of life and other consequences from the U.S. invasion, Iraq is a fundamentally freer country today than it was before 2003. Yes, there's crippling corruption, unemployment, poverty, and a complete reliance on oil as a source of wealth. But on the other hand, Iraq has elections that aren't perfectly free and fair, but are a lot better than people think. And I'm just like, wow, they're still at it. You know, I mean, this is just so remarkable. I think, you know, one of the one of the most obvious legacies of the 2003 invasion of Iraq is the ways in which the U.S. mainstream media has really become even more rigid, even even less even as as few dissident voices as there were back then, it, that has gone from, you know, whatever small percentage to an absolute zero now. And it's really remarkable to see, you know, the New York Times, the Atlantic, and NPR, all just kind of doubling down and minimizing the horrors visited upon Iraq by the United States. Yeah, I definitely, I just kind of feel that. I know, Chris, you want to get in here, but I just want to say, I definitely agree with you. And I think it's something that we should be very much so paying attention to because I, I think we're not challenging the base assumption. I mean, the base assumptions that are being made about the war that are still at play today are those base assumptions that women are profoundly oppressed and profoundly unable to do anything for themselves in any way, shape or form, or that the, the, the misunderstanding fundamentally of people in the United States of the way people live in the Middle East. I mean, that hasn't really changed. So they just draw, they kind of move right into that. They, they pull on that. And they double down on that because it's just an assumption that we can all believe without any sort of meaningful, real critique or meaningful, real look at what is going on in the details. But Chris, feel free to hop in. I wanted to say I remember that, especially with the voting in Iraq, right? There was the purple fingers, right? You would dip your finger in purple ink and they had photos of people showing the purple fingers. And at the same time in the U.S., this is when we still had, especially the right, were saying maybe Muslims shouldn't vote in U.S. elections. Are they actually good enough citizens? And it was just the hypocrisy, you know, of seeing that, you know, that that really that also, you know, stayed with me for a very, very long time. I want to turn a little bit, if we can, and talk about something a little further in the past. You've written in Middle East Eye about Indonesia. You quote the, the often repeated refrain that Indonesia is the world's most populous Muslim country, but often people don't understand the history of how the U.S. actually weaponized Islam to overthrow a progressive government uh, of Sukarno. How, can you talk a little more about the CIA's role in that and how they actually did weaponize Islam to overthrow the progressive government and install Suharto after him? Right. Um, so this is actually the subject of my next book, um, how the CIA has been one of the key authors of right wing Islam and how the CIA has stamped out the ambitions of leftist Muslims historically. So, yeah. So, you know, Indonesia is one such example. I want I want to make clear that the Indonesian Communist Party following the independence movement. So after its liberation from Dutch colonialism, the Indonesian Communist Party was huge. It was huge. It was one of the biggest communist parties in the world. And it had as its membership a vast number of practicing Muslims, uh, observant Muslims, right? And they were drawing from a legacy in Indonesia of like Islamic Marxist Leninism. Uh, they had a really unique interpretation of Islam. And uh, there were also in the country anti-communists who were observant Muslims. And you can guess which one the U.S. chose to ally with. And Sukarno himself was no communist, but he sought a kind of blend of the communist, nationalist, and religious elements in the country and was toppled. He was taken down, of course, and the Suharto regime that came to power in Indonesia oversaw a genocidal campaign, a, a wholesale purge not only of communist forces, but of anyone suspected to be, you know, pro-Sukarno, 
anti-Suharto, anti-capitalist, etc. And the reason I bring this up is because when you go to like Islamic conventions or Muslim multicultural events, there's always this refrain that you mentioned. Indonesia is the world's most populous Muslim country. And I think what that shows us is that there's like a very eager willingness in the U.S. to talk about questions of representation, to talk about questions of diversity, religious understanding. There's a curiosity about how who Muslims are, how they worship. The number of times I'm invited to like give a talk about what what is the significance of Ramadan, which literally has nothing to do with anything I research or write about or teach about. But I guess as a person who has written about Islamophobia and a, a Muslim scholar, that's the that's what I'm expected to do is explain who Muslims are to the West. And rather than explaining who Muslims are to the West, I'd way more explain how Western forces have related to the quote unquote Muslim world in these ways that you're describing in ways that have targeted and harassed Muslims, but have also provided key material support and even authorship of right-wing Islamism. And Indonesia, I think, is just an object lesson for that. But I also wanted to say, just jumping back to what we were talking about before, you know, this NPR article where they're like, Iraq has these elections now. They don't mention that in, in 2020, Iraq actually voted to expel U.S. troops. <laughs> and that, you know, so I, I just think there's this hilarious, it's very transparent, this hilarious, um, colonial kind of approach to thinking about U.S. statecraft and so-called Muslim majority countries that just when you just look a little bit closer, it just falls apart. It's, it's just so, so flimsy. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it is so flimsy when I'm thinking about it. I really appreciate you going in to some of the details about Indonesia as well, because I, I do think the in the popular consciousness in the U.S., it's like, um, what is where does Islam live? I mean, it's a very particular mindset of exactly where it lives. It's just on the Arabian Peninsula and it's just in the desert. And this is just what Muslims are. It's a very particular view and expectation and perspective around what people in the U.S. actually know about Islam. And so I think Indonesia is a very important, critical piece of this. And there's so much more to learn also just when you go into kind of the history of struggle in Indonesia that you can pull from the Communist Party in Indonesia, the kind of struggle they wage, and of course, the U.S. opposition to it. But I wanted to pick up this thread here, Nazia, that you had just mentioned. I mean, I, I, I'd like to talk about Iraq today. I mean, I think that it's a nice transition point for me when we're talking about the past 20 years, we're, we're talking about uh, so many different elements of this. But one thing that I think people are, are really not in the know about too much, to be honest, is the current state of Iraq. And where did the U.S. invasion actually leave people? I mean, we're talking about, I, I would say, cumulatively, like a, over a million people displaced and or killed. I mean, there really is a complete destruction of the country on so many levels. And, and I think the American public after the war, there really was a, a, a mass drop in interest to talk about, well, you know, I guess Iraq is free now. Let's just move on entirely. And I think that that is absolutely not the situation in case. Iraq has been left significantly worse off after the invasion. And so I'd love for you to talk more about kind of the details of this and what people aren't quite seeing about the the kind of what the mess is that the U.S. leaves behind after they've waged these kinds of wars. For sure. I mean, I think, you know, the toll of U.S. involvement in Iraq is unmeasurable in so many ways. And of course, formal attempts to measure it, whether we're talking about, you know, the, the death toll, the loss of life, etc., are often gross undercounts for a number of reasons. But, you know, shock and awe. The, the 2003 invasion of Iraq, of course, there was the immediate assault on Iraq. The targeting of civilian infrastructure, which actually predates the 2003 invasion, the targeting of hospitals, of baby formula factories, just has this, this, this toll on civilian life in Iraq that is really horrendous. But now we hear, we're here, you know, 20 years later, and we see this legacy unfolding. So, of course, with the removal of Saddam Hussein from power, there's what a lot of experts have called this kind of power vacuum, uh, which is that, you know, what Saddam Hussein was keeping in check the forces of Islamist militarism. In spite of the U.S. trying to conflate Saddam Hussein with al-Qaeda, anyone who knows anything about the region knows that it couldn't be further from the truth. And of course, so with Saddam Hussein and his government taken out of power, and the de-bathification that happened under L. Paul Bremer, basically a colonial viceroy of Iraq. <laughs> what happens is a whole bunch of folks are put into prisons, U.S. military prisons. And years later, we'll see those same people who were incarcerated and tortured and jailed by the U.S. forces forming ISIS. 
And ISIS is, of course, a direct result of the U.S. shock and awe campaign of the removal of Saddam Hussein from power. And so you see that. And then you also see uh, the result on the Iraqi sort of social welfare state where basic social services and all of these kinds of things have crumbled. Iraq has been looted by U.S. presence in the region, but also by U.S. alliance with Iraqi elites who have been eager to to loot the coffers of Iraq since then for, for two decades now. You know, the U.S. initially said, oh, we'll be, you know, in and out in a few weeks. You know, uh, Donald Rumsfeld famously, you know, saying this is not going to be a long protracted war. But as soon as it became clear that the Iraqi people were, were going to be resisting and defending their homeland, the U.S. government within, within a, a year or two then said, you know, this could lead to the power vacuum. They knew very clearly that this power vacuum that did occur could exist. And then we also saw under the Obama administration kind of the justification for staying in Iraq to avoid the power vacuum, but also I remember a lot of building schools and fixing roads and things like that, which, well, why were they destroyed in the first place? Because of the U.S. war. I want to connect this as well, the, the power vacuum, the rise of ISIS to, to Syria and the U.S. machinations against Syria, because, you know, the Syrian government, which is, you know, a national bourgeois government, certainly not a progressive, has worked with the U.S. in the past. I mean, the government of Bashar al-Assad allowed the CIA to open up black sites after 9-11, where torture happened. And still, we see, of course, the U.S. government comes in and says, Assad must go. That's That was the refrain for so long. And, you know, that conflict continues today. But it led to the U.S. funding the so-called moderate rebels, right? These, they were anything but moderate, of course. But, the, you know, the amount of money, political support, and political capital that, you know, went to forces aligned with or directly involved with ISIS or some of these other groups like al-Nusra, you know, shows to me that the U.S. time and time again does not care about the the religious ideology of a specific group, but it's a political question. The question is, can we use this group, this person, this ideology to further U.S. interests? And then in 20 years, you know, we can write our retrospectives and our memoirs about how messy it all was and how we did the right thing at the time. Absolutely. I'm so happy you bring up Syria, because to our point earlier about, you know, how the U.S. has related with Islam or political Islam in these varying ways, depending on what's convenient for ruling class interests in the U.S., there's no better example than Syria. Because, you know, the, the statement you've just made a few years ago would render you in many con in many circles an Islamophobe. Uh, if you say, oh, you know, the, the U.S. is funding these moderate rebels and, 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 and trying to topple the Assad government, you would be labeled an Islamophobe. That would be an anti-Muslim statement to make, which is just a, such a perverse rendering of what, you know, what, and th this is why I'm motivated to add to our understanding of Islamophobia, the U.S.'s alliances with right-wing um, Islamist forces, because without it, then you end up with these very sloppy interpretations of saying anything negative about um, Islamist forces, such as, you know, al-Nusra, etc. in Syria, then renders you an Islamophobe. It's really, it's a, just a really cynical ploy, I think. You also mentioned, you know, sort of arrogance of American statecraft and empire. I don't think I, I don't think you can have imperialism without imperialist hubris or arrogance. I mean, it was Wolfowitz who in 2003 said, you know, they're going to welcome us in Iraq. They're going to welcome us as liberators. And then you have years and years of conflict that unfold and an insurgency that arises as a result of the U.S.'s just debathification in the country of Iraq. Uh, so, you know, I think here we sit in the U.S. and we have to take really seriously this role of American hubris, this idea, and the same can be said in Afghanistan. People really thought it would be just easily winnable war. I think the same can be said of Syria. I think a lot of people thought that the Assad government could just be toppled with great ease by the U.S.'s sort of funding of its proxies in the region. Um, so I think, you know, I think it's important that we take that seriously, too. We absolutely have to. I, I don't know, Rachel, if you wanted to jump in here, but I think it's so critical to and it, it brings me back to thinking about Indonesia, but also Libya, you know, thinking about the places where Muslim people live. And, you know, Libya was another one of these. And right before it was right before Syria. And of course, the NATO bombing of Libya happened right around the same time 
right, as, you know, the the anniversary of the U.S. invasion of of Iraq. Looking at the way Libya was was treated in the media, it was a shorter run up to to the conflict, right, to the bombing, to the war. But there was this push for human rights, right? It was saying that, you know, Gaddafi was giving his soldiers, you know, Viagra or something and telling them to, you know, to rape Muslim women, which, you know, absolutely, first of all, was not true. It was just another one of these big propaganda pushes similar to, you know, Saddam Hussein throwing out the babies in the incubators and in order to get to get people on board with a war, which is another, you know, thing that happens a lot. But you know, I think we, we should talk about, you know, in, in Northern Africa, right? I mean, the Middle East, Northern Africa shares a lot of cultural history, and there are many differences as well. But the U.S. treats Islam as it, as this thing that only comes from really the Middle East, except when it's convenient to them. But Rachel, I know you wanted to jump in. Go ahead. I really appreciate, Nazia, the way that you're framing Islamophobia. And I think it's a really, it's a really critical rethinking, because I think in the U.S., and especially kind of in the U.S. left or kind of conversations that people have about Islamophobia, it can be very limiting and very limited to experiences people have here in the United States as a, you know, hyphenated American in many different ways. I, I definitely relate to this just as, you know, thinking about uh, racism against Asian Americans. I mean, people are not counting the anti-China sentiment that is fundamentally fueling the racism against Asian people in this country as part of the broader conversation that needs to happen about anti-Asian racism. I mean, it's not that complicated to to jump in and understand that the role of empire has always been, when it comes to racism against Asian Americans, it has always been about the spies. It's always been about the the kind of way that we otherize the enemy. I mean, that's what it's been for. And so it's a incomplete analysis, really, to say that, you know, stop Asian hate or just racism against Asian people. It's all about just kind of name calling or hate crimes or those kind of particularities in the U.S. because it's part of a broader conversation of empire. And I think Islamophobia is absolutely the same way. You can't talk about Islamophobia without talking about the U.S. invasion in Iraq, the U.S. invasion in Afghanistan, the U.S. war on terror, supposedly, the U.S. war in the Middle East. I mean, it's an incomplete narrative without seeing this bigger element, but also without then extending your analysis to actually talk about U.S. imperialism, not to just even mention it in passing for a domestic, a domestic experience, but rather it's part and parcel and core to the experience of Islamophobia in the U.S. So I really appreciate that analysis without a doubt. And I feel very much so that that way of thinking is is very critical today, because even when we talk about the war on terror, I mean, the U.S. has moved to some extent uh, away from having the war on terror be its main focus. I mean, the main focus in terms of the, the U.S. war machine at this point is, of course, Russia, it's China. But the playbook isn't that different. It doesn't look that different. It's It's quite the same. If you really look closely, the U.S. is always using the same kind of narratives that connect racism abroad and racism at home. I mean, they are one in the same. So I, I do really appreciate your your thinking on this. Thank you. You know, and to the I think you're right that the 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 style of war making remains the same, even if the focus shifts. So, for instance, anytime you see American political figures or the mainstream media who are basically the mouthpiece for American political leaders talking about individuals who are evil figures, you know, Assad, uh, Saddam Hussein is Hitler. Putin is a madman. Anytime you see this kind of individualization of these leaders, you better start listening really carefully. Right. And and you mentioned, Chris, earlier, you mentioned Libya, and that's a perfect example of it. I think the just brutal toppling of the Libyan state was sort of Hillary Clinton's love letter posthumously to Ronald Reagan, because that was a big part of his political career was an anti-Qaddafi, anti-Libya posturing that then was actualized during the Obama years and led to the toppling of a very successful um, North African state. Um, so, you know, I mean, that's really important. And that was NATO. Um, and so when we see NATO now in the Ukraine, we ought to ask ourselves a very similar question. So, yeah, I mean, I think I think your points, Rachel, are really important about, you know, American racism, about how the style of war making remains consistent, even as its focus shifts. And these are the lessons we ought to have learned from the so-called war on terror. But of course, unfortunately, in the American public consciousness, 
the quote unquote mistakes of the war on terror are just that they're seen as mistakes. They're seen as blunders. They're seen as, well, Bush was such an idiot or oops, we had faulty intelligence or, you know, we really made a mistake there. I mean, that that's kind of like the consensus. And that's a consensus that is reinforced, of course, for anyone who was in the anti-war, anti-imperialist movement in 2003. It's we know it's completely unfair to characterize it that way, that people always knew the WMD trope was a lie. People always knew that this uh, invasion of Iraq was going to have horrible outcomes. So it's just a real big rewriting of history to render it some kind of blunder. Yeah, especially a blunder that people weren't pushing back against as as they were happening. I mean, the incubator babies thing, I, I do. I remember people actively pushing back against this narrative as it was going on. And I mean, the fact that there were one of the first anti-war protests happened not too long right after 9-11 and the entire mainstream media was like, this is so profoundly disrespectful for you to protest. And anti-war activists said, we're going to do it because it's, you know, 9-11 is absolutely a tragedy. That is true. But the reality is, is that this is no, this is going to be, and we see the future. We see what's going to happen here. And the U.S. is going to wreak absolute chaos on Iraq and the, and the, the Middle East and a part of the world that is going to be devastated by this. So we need to be very conscious and aware. And I do agree with you. The framing itself kind of really keeps us out of that narrative. It keeps us away from the fact that people were actively resisting and rejecting these ideas outright. And it wasn't 10 years later that we found out the intelligence itself was faulty. People immediately felt that this there was something wrong here. But nonetheless, I mean, one of the other things I, I had wanted to say and bring in here about the kind of individual narrative, I, I really appreciate bringing that forward because I think the other part of it, too, is every time we, we talk about individual narrative, individual leaders, we are missing out on, on the greater context of what people in those countries even think about those leaders. I mean, there's so much to be said about the Ba'athist Party and Saddam Hussein and people's actual public opinions uh, about the government that the U.S. was not in, like people in the U.S. were not made aware of. It's just this person is profoundly evil and this is it. And of course, there's always issues and there's always things wrong with leaders and wrong with people in, in different movements in different countries. But that's not necessarily here nor there. I mean, the same thing goes for Assad. Like 80 percent of the people in Syria voted for and supported the Assad government. That's, that's a lot of people. That is a mass popular support of a politician. It's not about whether or not that politician is the, the most perfect politician to have ever existed. I mean, Putin as well. It's a very complicated relationship people have with him and how he got into power in the first place. I mean, people really had respected in Russia that Putin was a figure that stood up to the U.S. and to the West and had Russian nationalism that was very appealing to people in Russia. So I just think that there needs to be a, a greater fleshing out as well, outside of just the individual, but a greater fleshing out of the uh, the kind of surrounding reality of what people thought. I mean, Gaddafi, absolutely the same. I mean, Gaddafi, for a lot of people, was uh, a pan-African leader. I mean, that's what he did. I mean, Libya was a place where women had the most education in all of North Africa. I mean, there is so much to in terms of the actual government uh, of Gaddafi that profoundly benefited the people of Libya. And yet the narrative around what people, not just one or two or three individual people that CNN calls because they're a correspondent that they know or somehow is tied to one of these movements that's pro-West. But the reality is, is that the public opinion of these figures is a lot more complicated and nuanced. And so I really think it's an important thing to get into. Yeah, I mean, nuance is not allowed here. We don't do nuance. Uh, you know, I mean, that, and that was made clear. That was made explicit by Bush in his address to the nation after September 11th. He says, you're either with us or you're with the terrorists. And I think that was a formal policy position. It wasn't just rhetoric in his speech. You know, returning to the question of Islamophobia, the early days of the war on terror, the immediate aftermath of September 11th, what both Glenn Beck and Hillary Clinton have called the spirit of 9-12, was a precise kind of policing of this binary. You're either with us or you're with the terrorists. So suddenly speaking out against Israeli apartheid uh, renders you a terrorist or, or God forbid, making a donation to like a, a Palestinian human rights organization can literally, if you're Muslim in the U.S. after 9-11, can get you locked up for decades. There was no role for this kind of nuance that you're talking about. And that was on a formal policy level. You were either with us or with the terrorists. I mean, for those of your listeners who are too young to remember, you know, the immediate aftermath of September 11th, it was a remarkably repressive time 
You had students being expelled from school for wearing anti-war T-shirts. You had school teachers facing disciplinary action for showing their students maps of the world and explaining the histories of the politics of various regions that added nuance. I mean, nuance was a crime because when you add nuance to the conversation, um, the entire logics of the war on terror just collapse, as do America's you know, ambitions against China. I mean, one of the things that's really striking to me right now in the classroom is students are arriving in my classes from high school, having been fed a remarkable amount of anti-China rhetoric. And these are students who can't, again, who can't tell you why the U.S. invaded Iraq in 2003, who can't tell you who Julian Assange was, who can't tell you the first thing about the war on terror or American militarism, but have been fed this logic about China as a huge human rights violator or China as a major polluter. <laughs> of course, you know, the U.S. military is the bigger, po biggest polluter on planet Earth. But again, there's no room for that conversation. So I think your point about nuance is really, really well taken here. I think as we get into our, our last few minutes, I mean, first, I want to say, you know, I was a high school senior when 9-11 happened. And I, you know, certainly remember a lot of things shifting. I mean, really immediately, literally the next day or two. I want to ask about another lesson that I think we, we have to learn. And you have spoken about this, you know, in, in various forums. And it, it is that we also can't take away or we can't assume that the things that happened post 9-11, the Patriot Act, the uh, surveillance were new, that it was all of a sudden this, you know, proto-fascist, you know, Bush government that came in uh, and put these things into place, that these were actually things that were happening. So, yes, Muslims were being surveilled. Mosques in New York City and across the country were being surveilled by the NYPD, by the local police, by the FBI. But at the same time, you know, that is something that has happened to religious and, and national groups, uh, you know, across, you know, U.S. history. You've brought up in, in other pieces, you know, Native, uh, Native American groups. Certainly communists have dealt with this. Jewish groups, uh, as well as certainly black liberation groups have dealt with this in the past. And so I think if there's, you know, another lesson that we have to come out of this conversation with, it's that the U.S. was not suddenly transformed on 9-11 in the sense that it was now repressive towards towards Muslims, towards other people, but it, it was a continuation and an excuse, in fact, to heighten that surveillance and that oppression overall. For sure. I mean, look, what happened to local police departments after September 11th was they took on increasingly like counterterrorism policing roles. And that was not this like brand new thing. I mean, like the NYPD has long been involved in surveillance of, you know, communities of color, political communities, and has been since then. It was after September 11th that uh, the NYPD partnered with the CIA to develop its demographics unit, which was basically a Muslim surveillance unit. And by Muslim surveillance, I mean, you know, Arab coffee shops and bookstores, not just like political organizations or mosques, but mosques were absolutely formally labeled terrorist designations by the NYPD. So that's that's really important. But, you know, I think I think what you're pointing to the ways in which 9-11 and the war on terror that, that followed were uh, an extension of some of the key features of American political life is really important. I mean, one of the things that often falls out of the conversation is the economic reforms that happened in the wake of 9-11. So right after 9-11, when the American public is terrified and not just terrified, but made to be terrified of a, an imminent, a second terrorist attack, another terrorist attack, you know, it could be your town next. It could be your flight next was the reshuffling of the American economic system. The tax code was rewritten to benefit the ultra-wealthy in the U.S. That airline executives were given huge bailouts from the Bush administration, and not bailouts that helped the ordinary employees of the airline industry, but its highest-paid executives. Um, that offshore drilling was expanded. That basically, 9-11 allowed the American public to be so distracted. And of course, Islamophobia was one of those key distractions, the fear of the, the Muslim threat to allow further plunder of the working class by those at the very top. And I think that's something that often falls out of the conversation when we just focus on narrowly on like the 9-11 the as sort of a political event. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think so much needs to be drawn together about this. I mean, the motives of empire are the motives of capitalism. I mean, you can't have capitalism without this idea of this necessary expansion, which is where so much of this comes out of to begin with. I mean, it's really a question, an economic question in so many ways. 
around what the U.S. the U.S. ruling class is interested in. I mean, where are the resources? Where are they? What are they going after? Why are we expanding? I mean, those are our fundamental questions, really, about the nature of the capitalist system. And so, I think you're you're very right in bringing that forward. And I think that's a great place that we are going to have to leave it. There is so much more we could talk about here, but we really appreciate your expertise and all of the incredible information you've shared with us today. We were joined by Dr. Nazia Kazi, author of Islamophobia, Race, and Global Politics, an associate professor of anthropology at Stockton University in New Jersey. Thanks for joining the show, Dr. Nazia. Thanks for having me here. Well, either way, we're going to have to leave it right there. But before we go, if you like what you heard today and want to support independent journalism, go to patreon.com backslash covert action magazine. That's patreon.com backslash covert action magazine. Become a patron to get early access to content, but really become a patron to support independent journalism and support the show that you heard today. We really appreciate all of the support we get from our patrons. You've been listening to Covert Action Bulletin. I'm Rachel Hu. And I'm Chris Garafa. Covert Action is the official show of Covert Action Magazine and is brought to you by way of WBAI 99.5 FM Pacifica Radio in New York. If you've missed any of our episodes, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts by searching for Covert Action Bulletin or listen on your station's archives. In our last minute, we're going to give you a little tease of next week's episode where we're going to bring you some of the highlights from the March 18th Fund People's Needs, Not the War Machine protest in Washington, D.C. This is Claudia de la Cruz of the People's Forum. They lied about weapons of mass destruction. Remember that? They created al-Qaeda. They funded it. And then they were talking about persecuting Osama bin Laden. Right? You remember that? They lied about the horrific terrorist acts they committed against prisoners in Guantanamo. Remember that? Dehumanizing people. They lied about the numbers of casualties of war. Hundreds of thousands of people died at the hands of the U.S. military occupying Iraq. Remember that? And it was not, if it had not been for courageous journalists like Julian Assange. We would not know the truth. But what the US does with people who tell the truth is that they persecute them, they jail them, and if they can, they kill them. We know that history well, very well. And so I want to bring up a friend and comrade, the brother of Julian Assange, Gabriel Shipton. Free Julian Assange! Covert action.